Hello, this is Chris Sibley-Allen, back again with a third episode of the Healthcare Science Show. In the hospital I work in, we've been busy in recent weeks. Uh, The hospital has purchased a new electronic health record system. That's the computer system that stores all the information about patients, their appointments, the results of diagnostic tests and treatment plans. Uh, Basically, all the information that a hospital might need to function on a daily basis. So it's a pretty big deal and we're all learning how to use it and there's quite a lot to learn before it goes live in the autumn. You'll probably all be very familiar when you get a new computer system it can take a bit of time to get the hang of it and if you don't know how to do something then it can really make your blood boil. On that slightly torturous segue I'll have to have a word with the writers we come to today's topic which is blood and in this episode Shane Grimsley a clinical scientist from NHS blood and transplant talks about the basics of blood and blood transfusion in particular we focus on some of his work looking at ways to better match donated blood to people with a genetic condition called sickle cell disorder this group of people may require regular donated blood transfusions as part of their treatments one of my friends asked me what is a sickle So unless you cut grass for a living or harvest crops, you may not be familiar with the word. A sickle is a a curved blade, and when we talk about sickle cell disorder, the sickle part refers to the shape of the red blood cells being like this curved shape of this old tool called a sickle. When I was preparing for this podcast, I found myself several times on the Sickle Cell Society website reading about people's experiences of living with sickle cell disorder. It really brought home that it can have a huge impact on people's lives and opportunities. I would encourage you to check out the website. I'll put the link in the description. Finally, also a link to the blood.co.uk website for blood donation. If you're curious about this episode and feel able to donate, why not check it out as well? The, the first key question I had for you, Shane, is how do you control a skidding car if you're <laughs> on the road and there's ice? So a front-wheel drive car, you need to do your dad dancing. Right. How does that go? <laughs> you steer into the skids, and then you skid straight again. To give your tyres time to grip. If you keep doing that, eventually your, your tyres will, will begin to bite and you'll come out of the skid. Right. Rear-wheel drive car. Which is quite rare these days, right? Well, it depends how much money you've got. They're far more fun to drive. And all you've got to do really is steer and put your foot down. (laughs) (laughs) So people might be thinking, why are we talking about this? And it's because one of the things we've done together in the past is a a skid driving course down near Bristol, uh, pretty close to where you work, Shane, at NHS Blood and Transplant. Uh, Can you tell us what your job role is? The way I try to explain it is 99% of people that are seen at a hospital will have a relatively straightforward blood group and relatively straightforward blood requirement, and the hospital will be able to resolve those. But the 1% the hospital might want a little bit of help with, we have what we call reference laboratories or red cell immunohematology laboratories, and they offer a reference service to hospitals to help identify what bloods will be compatible. There are six or seven of those labs 
dotted around England and they resolve 99% of the hospital referrals. But the, the 1% that the reference laboratories might want some support with will come through to what we call our tertiary reference laboratory, which is where I work, it's called the International Blood Group Reference Lab. So that's dealing with particularly complicated cases. Yeah, so half of our workload comes from the laboratories in England and the other half are the complex cases from around the world. There's just so much to know and understand and learn about blood and it, it became a real passion of mine. What kind of situations do people actually need blood transfusions? The vast majority of blood is used for cancer patients, particularly leukemias and things like that. What would you use in cancer? So the patient's bone marrow basically ends up not functioning and there might be any number of blood cells that then are no longer produced by that bone marrow and, and need replacing. I see, yeah. So that the bone marrow is the site of production of people's red blood cells. All blood. Yeah, all blood cells. So red cells, white cells and platelets. Can you talk through what the components are and what they're needed for? Absolutely, yeah. Whole blood looks homogenous, right? It's a, it's a red fluid. And when you centrifuge it, you separate that into various components. The heavier components, which are your red cells because they're full of iron, go down to the bottom. Red cells deliver oxygen to the tissues. So red cells would be transfused to a patient who was anemic, with anemia being a reduced ability to deliver oxygen to their tissues. You'll then have a very thin layer of white cells. It's the white cells that produce the antibodies and fight infections. Layered on top will be the platelets. Platelets are really important to help form clots and are often prescribed to patients either who are bleeding or who are at risk of bleeding to help prevent bleeding for operations, etc. But the top half of your tube, when you've centrifuged it, will be a straw-coloured liquid, and that's the plasma. So that is used in things like major hemorrhage. If they're losing whole blood and you replace only the red cells, those red cells then in the absence of any plasma fluids to carry them are going to become far too viscous to enable the heart to pump them around um, and any any wound sites aren't going to be able to clot because the patient will have lost their clotting factors in their plasma and will have lost their platelets. I signed up to donate blood so I, uh, I've done it for the first time. Back in June I went to East London they had a centre for donating. I was going to chat about some of my experience there and maybe you can enlighten me a little bit on what what the different steps were. Uh, I'll do my best. How did you find the, the donation experience and like making your appointment and all of that? Was that relatively pain-free? Yeah, the whole experience was, was fine actually. It was quite good and there were plenty of options around London. I think it was in a school. I think it might have been a school or a community centre. I was greeted by the team and then I filled out a questionnaire, answered various questions about you know what my lifestyle activities were, if I've been in any particular countries if i'd had any sort of unexplained infections and these sorts of things i guess there's a there's a good reason for asking those kinds of questions yeah absolutely so this is ensuring donor welfare and uh, safe safe blood supply and honest answers to those questions is, is absolutely integral to helping to, to provide that safe blood for our patients yeah we had a, a bit of a discussion i'd been to southern spain over the last six or seven months before i donated where there might have been a risk of contracting west nile virus that's right so every donation will have a certain level of what we call mandatory testing which is is just hardwired in but then we do what we call discretionary testing so 
donors that maybe have been to an area where West Nile virus is present, those then will get flagged for that test. All diseases have a, what we call a window period. So that's whereby you're infectious for that disease, but the test that is available is unable to detect that disease because it's at such a low level within the system. So you'll be asked to defer your donations. By making those deferrals, we hope to ensure that those potential donors will move out of that window period when we test their blood donation. I've never heard anything back, so I presume, actually, I know that my blood has been sent to a hospital as well because that's that's a, an update that you get through the website. It tells you when your blood donation has been sent off to somewhere. So yeah, a lot presuming, of donors really like that. Yeah, I, I did actually. It was a nice nice surprise. It sort of comes a while after you've donated, of course, so you've kind of forgotten about it a little bit. But yeah, it's, it's out there. The other thing that they did was they had a little pinprick type needle that you put on your finger, draws a tiny drop of blood out, and then they put it in this blue liquid uh, and it sank. So that meant that I could continue to donate. I thought it was green. I thought it was green mm. for men. It might have been. Um, yeah, to ensure that they've... They've got a certain amount of hemoglobin. So to help, again, with our donor welfare, it's it's that copper sulfate drop test just to see whether that individual has the potential to be anemic. And if you're, as happened with you, Chris, you drop your one drop of blood in, it sinks straight to the bottom. It's dense enough. It's got enough iron in it. You're not anemic. Go yeah. ahead and take half a litre out of you. <laughs> as if it bobs around on the top, maybe you are anemic and then, we go on to additional testing then. I see, yeah. No, it definitely dropped straight to the bottom. Mm-hmm. Had a lot of iron in it, so it must have been heavy. Probably not a good idea to have a can of iron brew before you, you go in, perhaps, just to make sure. It's important to stay hydrated, though. Yeah, well, that was the other thing. They gave me a huge cup of water, 500 mils, to drink while I was filling out the safety form. And down the whole lot. Yeah, yeah, you need the fluid. And then I sat in a chair, and it tilts back, so your feet are raised up. It's kind of like a reclining chair. Then when they put the line in, like you can have a choice of arms. So I picked my left arm. I don't have a, a phobia of needles, but uh, I decided not to watch. And I wonder if that's something that is a barrier for a lot of people to donate. I think so. Yeah. So, you know, we don't want to put people off, but I, I've donated. Um, I'm a, a highly trained phlebotomist, which of course is what all of our nurses are because they're doing it all day. It's amazing. Sometimes you can't even feel it. I, I didn't actually feel it. I was too busy listening to the music, actually. They had a, a really high-tempo soundtrack, and I wondered if that was to get people's hearts beating faster to get the blood out quicker. <laughs> um, and then afterwards, I noticed that people have made Spotify playlists for blood donations, including Give It Away Now from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, uh, Piece of Me, Britney Spears, and uh, Lee Globin by Placebo. Nice. I don't know if you've got any extra songs that you'd want to add to the track. No, but I'm going to go away and think about it for the next song. Um, and then, yeah, so you're connected up to this machine. And I think the key was that I had to keep my blood pressure up. They basically said I needed to tense muscles in my legs, sort of do leg raises every so often. The machine would beep if the blood was not coming out fast enough. It took about 11 minutes to get the one unit of blood. How much is one unit of your blood? Is it a big proportion? An adult male would have about five and a half litres of whole blood and an adult female normally more like four and a half still giving a unit of blood which would be 450 mils so it takes a bit of time for your body to to replenish that we currently advise that men wait 12 weeks and that women have an interval of 16 weeks that just comes down to physiology really there are some donations which we're able to take more regularly 
what we call apheresis donations. So that's where blood will be taken out of your body through one line, and then it enters into a machine and processes it, and it will return the plasma and the red cells and keep some of the platelets. They're able to donate platelets every two weeks. And that's because platelets replenish much more quickly. And we have a we have a duty of care to our donors, which we take incredibly seriously because they're giving not just their blood, but as you've indicated, their time, potentially their money to travel. So it's absolutely essential to us as an organization that we that we care for our donors and that in the act of donating, no harm comes to them. Mm. And then that was it really. So then I then I uh, just had to sit down for a little bit and they had free biscuits and drinks to recover some of your your nutrients and energy, I guess, and had a good chat with the lady that was working there. And yeah, I was kind of nervous before I donated, but it wasn't that bad at all. I think that's definitely something I could do again. What happens once that blood has left me? Where where does it go? So that sits then um, within those teams. They'll put it in special transport boxes. And at the end of the day, they drive that back to their nearest blood centre. Lots of different blood donation sessions will drop their blood off there. All of our donations will go to one of three manufacturing sites around the country for processing into those various components. But we've got two what we call testing laboratories. So they would do the virology and microbiology testing. We have stockholding units, which will hold blood reasonably locally so that major hospitals aren't far from a, from a delivery of blood. And then we have lots of scientific labs as well that we, that we run in the background and research, etc. Do you have to put it on ice or something? How long does it keep for? No, no. It's pretty robust. It comes out at 37 degrees and it just sits in the bag then in an in a insulated transport box. Different components have different expiries. So red cells have a 35-day expiry, platelets are seven days, and the plasma, once it's frozen, can be frozen for three years. Yeah, I did think it's quite amazing, actually. There must be a lot of people donating to keep the supply going. Absolutely. Long bank holidays, Easter, Christmas, can be very challenging for platelets because with a seven-day expiry, if you were to not collect any for four days, you'd get incredibly slow. How do they actually request blood in the hospital? If they're looking after somebody, then they can say, I need blood for this person for X, Y, Z reason. Is there some kind of Amazon blood or some sort of delivery type system? They would they would fill in a request form that would go through to their blood bank. Their blood bank would hopefully check that that's an appropriate request. And then within that blood bank, they'd have all of their various blood components ready to issue. Welcome to the Blood Donation Center. My blood type was B positive. That's kind of motto of mine as well. So, you know, hands <laughs> together. I'm sure you've heard all the jokes. What does it mean that my blood is B positive? Yeah, so the blood group system that nearly everybody will have heard of is ABO. It's because it's the most important blood groups. The vast, vast majority of people will be group A, group B, group O, or group AB. If you could look under a very powerful microscope at the red blood cell, what would you see if it was an A or if it was a B? So let's let's start from the beginning, right? All cells have got lots of different 
proteins within their membranes. They're used for intracell signaling, all sorts of different channels to enable different different substances to travel across that cell membrane. And a red cell is no different. Red cell's got lots of different proteins in its red cell membranes that are responsible for lots of different functions. And those form the basis of the various different blood groups. On many of those proteins on a red cell, there will be carbohydrate structures that are added. Blood group O comes about when you have a chain of carbohydrates. What, what the difference then is for A and B is if your blood group A, there'll be one more sugar molecule added to that carbohydrate structure. And that is the only difference between blood group O and blood group A is that single sugar molecule that gets added, which is quite amazing really for such an important change. And, and if you're blood group B, then it will be a different sugar molecule that gets added to that carbohydrate chain. It's actually really quite easy to describe if you've got pictures, but on a podcast it's quite mm-hmm. hard because <laughs> you've yeah. only got my voice. Yeah. So, so the, the cells have on their surface slightly different molecules that signify that one is an A and one is a B, but you can't see it on a microscope. No chance. Way too small. <laughs> Way too small, yeah. You can see red cells, of course, and you can see different proteins on the surface, but you wouldn't be able to discern the difference in carbohydrate structures. Yeah, and that's basically the size of atoms. Yeah, it is, and the orientation of some of those atoms. Right. Which really... I think it's quite amazing when you consider the immune response that can be generated with such a small difference. How does that then interact with the immune system? Is there any analogy to vaccination? Yeah, that was, yeah, exactly what I was going to going to move on to. So, COVID, why not? If you catch COVID, you make antibodies to it. Any pathogen that's non-self that enters the body, your immune system is is, is designed to recognize as non-self and mount an immune response. ABO is quite unusual in that people have these preformed, sometimes called naturally occurring antibodies. So you, you're, you're group B, so you will have anti-A. What's anti-A? So that would be an antibody that recognizes the A blood group sugar molecule. And if you, as a patient, were to receive group A red cells, there's a good chance that wouldn't end very well for you because you've got lots of anti-A antibodies in your system. Your body would mount a, a very severe and traumatic immune response, quite likely, to those red cells and, and cause hemolysis, cause those red cells to be destroyed within your system, which would cause the release of a lot of iron, a lot of cytokines, and um, you, you could go into shock and it can be fatal. So hopefully that will never happen. Um, it's a never event. It's an NHS never event that we give ABO incompatible transfusions. That said, they do occasionally happen, but there's there's a lot of effort that goes into ensuring that it doesn't. It all sounds a bit like a kind of security card system for the body. So all my blood cells, being a, a B B positive person, my blood cells will have the security card saying I'm a B, I am part of this person, and then if I got transfused the A blood cells, my immune system would see those security cards and say, well, you're not supposed to be here. The security team is going to hunt you down and, and, and kick you out of the building, essentially. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So then you've got the, the positive or the negative aspect of that. So that relates to a completely different blood group system called RH. So where we were talking about ABO, and there's just the four blood groups, A, B, O, and AB within RH, 
There's about 60 now. But the most important one by far is a blood group called D, sometimes called rhesus. So where you're B positive, what that means is your ABO blood group is group B, but that your D type is D positive. And generally, people are either D positive in that they have that D protein within their red cell surface, or they're D negative, which is a complete absence of that protein. Why do we need to have a positive or negative description? What's so special about the D molecule on your red cell surface? So it's a good sized protein, but there are also many tens of thousands of copies of that protein on each red cell. So it's very immunogenic, which means that an individual that lacks that blood group will readily mount an immune response when they encounter that blood group. So if there's so many more blood groups, why are we only interested in A, B, O, and D? Good question. I'm not only interested in those, but the vast majority of people that receive a blood transfusion need blood that is only matched for those blood groups that are particularly abundant and immunogenic. How do you match? What's the practical thing you have to do when you receive some blood? So it's still it's still widespread now that we'll do what we call a serological crossmatch. A serological crossmatch is taking some blood from the patient, spinning that down, and taking some of their plasma. And within that plasma, we talked about there being different antibodies. For example, if their blood group O, they will have anti-A and anti-B in there. We then test that patient's plasma with donor cells. And we literally just look for agglutination of those cells. What's agglutination? So that's where the patient's antibody will bind to the donor's blood group and will cause those red cells to stick to one another, essentially. It's really quite dramatic. You can, you can see it very easily often with the naked eye. And if they do then you've a good indication that that will happen in the body and you would choose to not use those donor cells. You can imagine if you're manually mixing plasma and centrifuging things, it's going to take a lot. Every single patient that requires a blood transfusion in a hospital, that is an awful lot of work. We can also do electronic issues. So for, for patients that we have good evidence won't mount an immune response, then we can use a computer to assure us that the donated red cells that we're going to issue do match the patient's blood groups. Mm. Electronic issues become very popular because it's actually really quite safe and saved a lot of time. Me being B positive, that would, would have meant that I'd have inherited something from my mum and my dad. That's right, yeah. So in order to be a B positive, you will inherit one B gene from a parent and either a second B gene from your other parent or an O gene. There isn't actually an O gene, but an, an O allele. The genes being the instructions for building these different molecules that appear on the cell surfaces. What's an allele? An allele is a version of a gene. So I've got two cars on the drive. One's an Astra, <laughs> one's a one series. So to, to, to use this analogy that I've made up on the spot. Okay. They're both cars. So you have two genes, but only one's an Astra, one's a one series. So they're those would be the alleles because they give you extra detail as to what what the product of that gene is. So there's only ever um, an ABO gene, and you would have an A allele, a B allele, or an O allele. 
Right. Incidentally, did you inherit those cars or were they things that you bought? <laughs> More or less inherited one of them, actually, from a mate. I'm quite proud of that. It's lasted forever. Mandy, her name is. She cost me 650 quid five years ago. The, car, the car's name is Mandy or? Yeah. <laughs> wow. What's the other one's name? She hasn't got a name, poor thing. That's the wife's car. <laughs> so coming to the end of talking about blood, about 8% of the UK population has the same blood type as me. In other countries, it seems like B-positive is quite a, a common one. Well, why do people have different blood groups anyway? Why aren't we all B-positive? Make life easy, wouldn't it? It's just genetic variation. That's all it is. Different ethnicities, different areas of the world have different frequencies of blood types. There may be evolutionary pressure on some of those. There is some evidence that blood group A would be less common in malarial endemic countries in Africa, for example, because it's thought that blood group A uh, enables the malarial parasite to infect red cells more readily. Okay, so it's evolved over millions of years. Certainly tens of thousands. And if you live in a particular area where there's certain pressures from the environment, then you're more likely to survive with a particular blood group than another. That's right, yes. Survive to a point where you can reproduce, right? Mm. So if you can prevent severe malarial infection so that you survive to adulthood, that sounds like it's a conscious decision. Of course, it's not evolutionary, mm. but it's. I, I don't know that anybody fully understands why there are the changes that there are in so many of these blood groups. Blood's complicated, isn't it? Blood's super complicated. Let's turn on the centrifuge. A. Positive. B. Positive. O. Negative. A. B. Positive. Now we're going to talk a little bit about the project that you're working on, Shane. Can you give us a brief overview of what, what you're working on at the moment? Of course. There is a group of patients that require regular transfusion. And that's a group of patients that have a disorder called sickle cell disorder. And it affects people of Black African and Black Afro-Caribbean heritage because it's evolved as a defense mechanism to malaria. But when the red cells of these individuals become deoxygenated, they actually change shape so that it's no longer a very round donut-shaped red cell. It's actually a sickle-shaped cell. And so red cells have to pass through small capillaries to deliver their oxygen. They're very deformable. But in sickle cell, once those cells sickle, they become really quite rigid and they get stuck in capillaries. They can cause what we call vaso-occlusive crises, where sufficient capillaries get blocked so as there's local anemia. But they'll also end up rupturing. And when they rupture, that of course causes anemia because there are fewer red cells now to deliver oxygen. But it also releases iron and other toxic substances into that poor patient's bloodstream. And these patients, if they have a moderate or a severe disease, will be transfusion-dependent. What symptoms might somebody have with a, a condition like sickle cell disorder? It would present to begin with with anemia. So they would be lethargic, general malaise. You know, they would they would struggle to get out of bed in the morning. They would struggle to run for a bus. But the symptoms can become very severe because your body's then trying to compensate for the anemia. It's trying to push out lots of immature red cells from the bone marrow. It can cause really quite deep pain 
these individuals' bones. You can imagine if capillaries in your hands get blocked. This can happen in cold weather, actually. That can be incredibly painful. But the the biggest cause of severe morbidity and mortality would be occlusions in the brain that then end up leading to stroke. And it's an inherited condition. That's right, yeah. Yeah, it's an inherited condition whereby one of the haemoglobin genes has a change in it so that the, the haemoglobin can actually polymerize. So rather than staying in nice neat subunits, you end up with long chains of haemoglobin in a red cell and that's then what affects the cytoskeleton and prevents that red cell being deformable. Mm, okay. And in terms of its inheritance, what kind of pattern does it follow? You can be what we call trait, which is where you inherit one sickle haemoglobin allele, or you can you can inherit two, and that would be where you would be affected potentially quite severely by your by your altered haemoglobin genes. A bit like when we were talking earlier, you could have one copy of the gene, one flavor, one type of car that brings the condition and one type of car that doesn't. But if you have one copy of the gene sickle cell trait, you can still have symptoms as well? You can. You wouldn't tend to because you'd have enough regular haemoglobin to ensure oxygen delivery. What you would have, of course, is a chance of passing your affected gene onto your offspring. Mm. So two individuals that each have sickle cell trait would have a 25% chance of having a child that had sickle cell disorder because they each have a 50% chance of passing on that sickle allele. How do people find out that they have the condition? Is it something that's screened for when people are having pregnancy or...? You wouldn't find out later on in life. Hopefully not, but I'm sure lots of people do find out later on in life. At risk, birth should all be screened. So coming to your project, you're hoping to improve the process for matching donated blood for sickle cell patients. Is that kind of the gist of it? Yeah, that's a good, very good summary. So because of the anemia caused by their condition, they often regularly receive red cell transfusions. Not every individual with sickle cell disorder requires regular transfusion, but many do. Patients that we know are going to be transfusion dependent will get blood group matched for A, B, O, and D, which is the pause and the negative. So if you imagine A, B, O, and D to be the bare minimum of matching that we can do, they'd also be matched for additional blood groups. We're imaginative when we name our blood groups. So we've got D, but we've also got big C and little C. So we write those literally as a capital or a lowercase c and big E and little e and K because K is another, they're nearly all letters. K is another immunogenic group system that is important to match for, particularly in transfusion dependent patients. Why is it important to match not just on the ABO? Why, why the additional needs? Because they're transfusion dependent, they're going to end up with lots of transfusions over their lifetime. What we want to do is try to minimize the chances of these patients making antibodies to blood groups that are foreign to them. So we match to a greater level than we do, for example, if I had a car crash, it would just match ABO. Because it's so frequent that someone else's blood is introduced, your immune system might get sensitized to it. And I guess that's not great for someone with sickle cell disorder. How easy is it to get a match? Well, if you were to match for A, B, O, and D, just as you said, 8% of the UK population are B pos, right? Mm. So just matching on those two blood groups, you'd only have one in 11, one in 12 random people that had the same blood group as you. So as you start to introduce 
other blood group systems, you can imagine that that number becomes small very quickly. So it's much harder to find a match, essentially, with these extra criteria. Exactly. What is also true is that there are differences in prevalence of these blood groups in different populations all around the world. And that's just a a natural evolutionary thing that has happened. But it means that patients with sickle cell disorder who are of Black African and Black Afro-Caribbean heritage have different prevalence of blood groups to the general UK population, which is predominantly, of course, white. So if you're then trying to meet the blood requirements for patients of Black African and Black Afro-Caribbean descent with donors of white European descent, it becomes even harder. And that's why it's, it's it's really important that we try to encourage blood donations from all ethnicities. How many um, donations are needed for helping treat people with sickle cell disorder? At current, we already need 250 donations of blood every single day to treat patients with sickle cell. And that's about 3% of red cell use in England. And that number's going up. That's a lot of people per day. Just for one condition. And that's that's outside of all of the cancers and all of the car accidents and all of the surgeries. Mm, yeah, I'm, I'm of a white background. Certainly the, the B-positive blood that I, I had seemed unlikely that it was going to be useful for sickle cell disorder. But it can still be helpful, that's the thing, because there are the majority of patients with sickle cell disorder don't make antibodies because we match the ABOD, big C, little C, big E, little E, and big K because your blood mm. will have been tested for those blood groups. Mm-hmm. It can still be used because it could match. But you're absolutely right that it's far more likely to match from a black donor. We have more black donors than ever before, which is fantastic, but we still need an awful lot more to enable the right level of matching. Do people get reactions to blood that's transfused at the moment because we, we don't have enough knowledge to match it perfectly at the moment? Absolutely, yeah. Blood's very complex. So we've we've talked about A, B, O and D. We've talked about big C, little C, big E, little E and big K. But at last count, there were 374 different blood groups. 99.9% of patients are only matched for that A, B, O and D. And mm. we don't even we don't even look at the rest. But if you consider just taking blood from one person and putting it in another person, mm. I, I I find it absolutely amazing that the vast majority of the time that works out okay, <laughs> rather than <laughs> rather than being surprised that sometimes it goes a little bit wrong. It sounds like there's a lot to understand still for blood. We understand which blood groups are most likely to to develop antibodies, develop immune reactions, but there's still potentially more to do because there's so much variation in in the genetics that produces these types of blood. Several years ago, I was part of a project doing some relatively detailed DNA analysis. We've genotyped just over five and a half thousand patients with sickle cell disorder. We haven't sequenced their entire genome, nothing like that. What we've done is incredibly selective, looking at specific changes at about a dozen different nucleotide sites within the RH genes. This is the gene that's making RH blood groups. That's right. That's that's the genes that encode the D, big C, little C, big E, little E blood mm. groups. There were 60 of them or more, you said earlier, didn't you? 
Absolutely. But in in the white European population, the level of variation extends really to D, big C, little C, big E and little E. And that will cover off well over 99% of the population. Whereas within people of African ancestry, there are lots of changes in their RH gene and therefore in their RH blood group. Some of these changes will mean that the patient's can recognize a white European RH blood group as foreign and make an antibody mm-hmm. and make it difficult to transfuse that patient. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, a, it's a detailed genetic analysis of one particular blood group system to try to understand which changes within that gene need to be detected and matched for and which changes within that gene we don't need to worry about quite so much from a transfusion perspective. Mm. If those if those changes are identified in those individuals, we can rest assured that they will tolerate white European donor blood. What does the genetic data actually look like? How do you analyze something like that? So what I'm going to try and do is subdivide these five and a half thousand patients with sickle cell disorder into groups based upon the genetic changes that we've detected. So if you imagine, we call these genetic differences one, two, three, four, and five. Mm -hmm. So it might be that only one person in that five and a half thousand that we've genotyped has only changed one. And it might be that a thousand people, it won't be, but it might be that a thousand people have got change two. Right. Yeah. So that then gives us an indication that that second change obviously is far more prevalent than the first. Mm-hmm. But what I also want to do then is look at the patient's transfusion history and see what blood groups they've been exposed to and then have a look at their antibody production history to try to see what the incidence of antibody production in each of those cohorts is. So it might be that 100 patients have got change three and nobody's made an antibody and 100 patients have got change four and 99 of them have made an antibody. Mm. So that would signify that change four is one that seems to generate antibodies and immune responses. Absolutely. Exactly. Mm. And would therefore require a better matching of blood to ensure that those patients don't go on to make those antibodies to ensure that we can continue to transfuse those patients safely and to ensure that those those patients have a far better quality of life. And then also, how, how are you going to know whether someone has been sensitized? How are you going to match up the genetic groups to adverse reactions or or antibody production immunization in in the patient population? That will require some legwork. So that will be then reaching out. We have our own computer systems within NHSBT for patients that, that we've seen and that we've tested to see what antibodies they have. But it might be that I need to reach out to hospitals and ask them to inform me of what, if any, antibodies these patients have made. And importantly, what if any clinical effect those antibodies have had? Presumably that's something that they would record and have available. Absolutely, yeah. But that data gathering is definitely something that I'm, well, I was going to say daunted by because there's a lot of information there to to get in and to get right. Mm. What's the strength of NHSBT in this kind of research? It's the fact that it's national. It's It's really, really advantageous to us in England that we have a national 
blood and transplant service. Lots of other countries will have very localized services. It means that we can build up these big data sets and publish and share them. Transfusion is definitely very guilty of case study-led science, which I think is quite poor. There might be one case study written up where a patient with genetic change 3 has made the antibody. And there might also be one case study written up where genetic change 4 has made the antibody. So it can lead people to think that it's an important one to match for because no one's written up the mm. 99 that didn't. There's a positive bias in the publications. There's a huge yeah. positive bias. And you, you've got 5,000 or more people to have a look at. So that's quite a nice sized sample. That's right. So you need a really large patient cohort. And this is by far the largest sickle cell disorder cohort that will be written up in the world. Some studies have managed to get to 1,000, but nothing like 5,500. How, how will you know if you're succeeding in this project? What I would like to see is a reduction in transfusion reactions. What I would like to see is patients with sickle cell disorder getting better matched blood and there being a lesser rate of alloimmunization. But a lot of the improvements that we bring in are quite hard to measure because we have quite poor baselines. You know, a really robust baseline. This was the situation at time A and then two years later after this intervention, you can see this improvement. What's the challenge with getting a good baseline at the moment, just knowing that antibodies have been generated and, and clinical reactions have happened? Or That's right. So where the advantage of NHS blood and transplant is that it's a national trust. There are 230 trusts that we serve mm. that each have their own patients, that each have their own testing strategies, that each have their own transfusion procedures. So knowing and understanding the alloimmunization rates across all of those trusts is going to be very, very difficult. How would that kind of research lead into patient care changing in the future? The way I imagine it changing is where we might look for these 12 different genetic changes. If we can show that some of them are not clinically significant, then we know that we no longer need to, to look for those genetic changes. What happens at the moment is we'll identify that genetic change, we'll report that back to the clinicians and say, oh, you know, there, there is a change here. Be mindful that your patient might make antibody. And actually, we had hoped that that would be a positive step. And I think largely it has been a positive step because it alerts the clinician that there is the possibility of antibody production. Mm. But oftentimes what happens is that the blood bank then become concerned about transfusing mm. and they want to have a discussion. They want to seek out support from a clinician or maybe from NHS blood and transplant. And that mm. leads to a delay in the patient's transfusion. And transfusion delays for everybody are dangerous. A patient with sickle cell disorder that requires a transfusion is really quite unwell and become, can very rapidly become very unwell. Mm. So by having a delay to their transfusion, it can have a very, very significant effect mm. Mm. on their health and on their outcomes. So what I'm hoping is that we can tailor our genetic testing to identify only those variants that are of concern mm. and therefore cause justifiable delays for patients that need better matched blood and avoid mm. delays in those patients that we've good evidence that they don't need matched blood because mm. we won't even look for that variation mm. and we won't make anybody think, oh my goodness, there's a change there. Do I need to do something special? Yeah. They won't know about it. They'll go ahead and they'll, they'll give them the blood as quickly as possible. 
So it will help, I hope, in both directions. That sounds really promising. How, how are you planning to spread information about what you find? You, you write a paper or something? I think it'll be at least one full publication. So we'll write that up and then present it maybe at the International Society of Blood Transfusion. And it's possible for this to help not just people in the UK, but across, across the world, I guess. Absolutely, yeah. What would you say to anyone considering donating blood? Go ahead, register. It's so easy to register. As you've said already, Chris, it's an easy and painless process. And that one altruistic consideration can save or improve the life of three different people. was the healthcare science show thanks to shane grimsley from nhs blood and transplant for sharing his knowledge and expertise on the topic of blood and blood transfusion check the links in the description if you want to find out more about this topic and also check out our twitter at hcss underscore podcast hoping to release episodes every three months or so so tune in for more in a few months thank you all for listening